0: Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, beginning at verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to the disciples. He said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." I tell you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After they sang a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There have been some words recorded in history that are so familiar, so well known, so famous that they need no real introduction or explanation. In the beginning, it is finished. To be or not to be, that is the question. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and have been endowed with unalienable rights, including the pursuit of happiness, life, and liberty. I have a dream. Won't you be my neighbor? But tonight we consider some of arguably the most important words ever recorded. Words that have been repeated with devotion, and sincerity, and regularity, unlike any other words that have ever been recorded in human history. They're so significant, the words that we consider tonight, because that in the Latin language, they are simply called verba, the words. Of course, the words we're going to consider tonight are the words that Jesus used when he instituted the Lord's Supper. So, The question we'll ask, what is it exactly that makes these words so important, so significant? First of all, these words are words of proclamation and not of prayer. When the pastor speaks these words as he consecrates the elements, he is not asking God to do something. He is not petitioning for God to perform some sort of a miracle, and neither... Are these words an exhortation to the congregation? That's what the Reformed believe. John Calvin believed and taught that these words are an encouragement to the congregation, to believers, to to lift yourself up in your heart and your mind and through faith to heaven because that's where Jesus is. The Reformed believe that that Jesus can't possibly be here. He's he's in heaven. That's, That's where he's located. And so you must... Lift yourself up in faith to meet him there. And that's, that's also the rather slippery way that the Reformed teach that Jesus is truly present in the sacrament. They would agree if we would ask them, is Jesus really present? Well, yes. But you have to go up to him in heaven. He doesn't come down to you. But clearly these words, you heard these words from Jesus. He's not praying and he's not telling his disciples that he has to do, that they have to do anything either. He is proclaiming to them what he is doing on that night in the upper room. And more importantly, when you hear these words in a church like this, Jesus is proclaiming to you exactly what He is doing right here and right now. These are words of proclamation, not prayer. They are also words of revelation and not incantation. An incantation is a spell. A spell is something where if you speak the words in the right way and in the right order and with the right heart and emotions, then whatever you ask to happen will happen. They're associated with witches and witchcraft. Now why would anyone ever start to think that the words that Jesus used to institute his Lord's Supper could be understood as casting a spell or or using an incantation? Well, in the medieval Christian church, the priests would typically consecrate the elements with their backs facing the congregation. And there were no microphones then. And so what the, the priests were saying and what they were doing was very unclear to the congregation. And, and they also spoke the words in Latin, which most of your average everyday people didn't understand. Some scholars believe that the, the Latin words for this is my body, hoc est corpus meum, were actually heard by the people as hocus pocus. Hoc est corpus meum, hocus pocus. And and so that kind of switched over into the secular unbelieving world and magicians use those words even to this very day. You can see why some would come to understand the words of institution as, as kind of casting a spell, as an incantation. But clearly Jesus is not casting a spell here, is he? He is, in fact, revealing something. Revealing something that would otherwise be unknown. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. They've been with him for three years. They know a whole lot about him. They know that John pointed to him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They know that Jesus said, I have come to lay down my life as a ransom for many. They know Jesus predicted at least three times that he was going to be betrayed and arrested and convicted and eventually crucified. They know all these things. All of these things are floating around in their minds, but, but they don't really understand them yet. They haven't put it together. What does all this mean? How, does, how do those things involve Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ? And so Jesus takes this opportunity on his on the last night before he will die to pull all those pieces together and explain to them very clearly in the context of the Passover meal with that, that butchered lamb that they were eating right in front of them that just as all of those hundreds and thousands of lambs had to give up their lives, were slaughtered to protect in place of the the Israelites, to save their lives. So Jesus was going to give his body and pour out his blood as a substitute for them. He revealed to them what was really going on, what was going to happen in the next 16, 18 hours, that he would be the lamb who would give up his life and pour out his blood for the sake of many, for the sake of sinners. But that's not all that that these words reveal to us that we wouldn't otherwise know. In his small catechism, Martin Luther takes great pains to point out that the most important part of the Lord's Supper is not our eating and our drinking, but rather the words given and poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that would be completely hidden if Jesus didn't explain it to us, right? What purpose in the world could this serve to eat a tiny little wafer of bread and take a little glass of wine apart from Jesus' explanation, his revelation of it? And and so he reveals it so clearly. Do this, eat this, drink this for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, to everyone who knows the gospel, that's not novel. We all know, anyone who knows John 3.16 or any other of the gospel passages, everything that Jesus did was for the forgiveness of our sins. But there's something unique here. When those words are attached to a piece of bread and a cup of wine that you receive as an individual, the the price that Jesus paid on the cross, the, the body that he gave, the blood that he poured out for the world there is offered to you individually. Here is Christ for you. There he was for the world objectively, but here he is for you as an individual. What a blessing that is. That Jesus didn't just die for the world. When he willingly went to that cross, he had you in mind. He had you so much in mind that he had already planned the night before he died to give himself to you, put himself in your own hands and in your own mouth. We're going to go through, we're going to use as our confession of faith this evening, Luther's explanation of the Lord's Supper. And and as we do, I just want you to pay attention, take note of, and take to heart how frequently he, he picks on those words. For you. This sacrament is many things, but most of all, this sacrament is for you. This sacrament is to remind you that Jesus took your individual place on that cross underneath God's wrath and punishment this sacrament is a personal reminder to you that you now have the privilege of taking Jesus' place as God's holy and beloved child. These are words not of incantation. Jesus isn't casting a spell. He's telling us, He's revealing to us what the sacrament is all about. So these are words of proclamation, not prayer. Words of revelation, not incantation. And they are words of reliving and not recollecting. We don't celebrate this sacrament just to kind of, in our minds, transport ourselves back 2,000 years to that upper room and try to imagine what it would have been, uh, what it would have been like to be there with Jesus and his disciples. We celebrate this sacrament because Jesus is coming right here to be with us right here and right now. As you step up to these tables to receive the sacrament, I don't want you to try to imagine what that upper room was like. I want you to see through your eyes of faith that it's Jesus himself who is really administering this sacrament to you. That's what we teach and believe. We teach and believe that, that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on Monday, Thursday in that upper room. But he instituted it as a meal that would not end. He instituted it as a meal that would be celebrated continuously by believers throughout the ages until finally he returns and takes us to celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb with him in heaven. It's a never-ending meal. And Jesus is there every time it's celebrated, no matter where and no matter when. Now that's what we believe and confess, but that's not what everyone, every Christian believes and confesses. In fact, as I said before, the Reformed believe that Jesus is in heaven and, and He can't leave there. He can't possibly be here. You have to try to somehow get yourself up to Him. They don't celebrate this as, as an active meal where Jesus is giving us His true body and blood, really present. Instead, they, they celebrate it as nothing more than a memorial meal. Just to put it bluntly, Reformed people, those who fall under the Reformed tradition, and, and sad to say most evangelicals see this as nothing more than a, a sacred act by which you kind of celebrate the death of a dead man. You celebrate somebody who died a long time ago. And for us, it's just the opposite. We're not celebrating a dead guy from long time ago. We're celebrating our living and risen Savior who is here to serve us with his body and blood right here and right now, just as he promises in those words. It comes almost clearly, I think, in the word that Luke uses. Luke records that Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. Now you may think that, well, that just means that he wants us to remember what he did. But that Greek word is only used one other place outside of the words of institution in the New Testament, and that's in Hebrews chapter 10. And in that chapter of Hebrews, the author is again making the distinction between the the ongoing, never-ending sacrifices of the Old Testament and the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And this is what he says in that context. These sacrifices reminded them of their sins year after year. This This isn't just a faint recollecting. This isn't just remembering an event that happened a long time ago. For those people who had to stand there before the priest as that priest took a lamb by the neck and slit its throat, that was a very vivid reminder to them of what their sins cost. That those sins couldn't be taken away by anything less than the life and blood of an animal. Jesus wants you to have that same vivid remembrance, that same vivid remembering of what He did not so that all of your, your guilt and shame and all the sins you've committed from the past come, come flooding back and you're overwhelmed with guilt. You know how that happens? Maybe it happens at night. Maybe it happens during the day. Maybe it happens when you run into somebody you haven't seen for a long time. But those sins you committed, they come back and it's like you're reliving it again. You wake up in a cold sweat thinking, did I do that all over again? In the sacrament... Jesus wants his forgiveness to be just as vivid for you as sometimes your guilt is in your mind. He wants you to take in your hand his own body, his own blood that he shed for you so that relief and comfort and the assurance of eternal life are as vivid for you as if you had been standing underneath that cross and hearing Jesus say to you, look you in the eye, saying, Father, forgive them they don't know what they are doing. This isn't just a memorial meal. We are reliving in the presence of Jesus, Him giving to us what He has done for us so that we may be comforted and relieved of the guilt of all of our sins. Finally, these words are not words of division, but they are of unity. Ha! You may be thinking because you know that in just a few minutes I'm only going to invite members, communicant members of Risen Savior and members of other wells and ELS churches in our fellowship to be ushered forward. Ha! You may be thinking, because it seems that the practice of closed communion is one of the most divisive and polarizing, not to mention mean, practices in all of the Christian church. Ha! You may be thinking, because you've had your own family members sitting in these chairs with you, and you've been divided from them because you've been allowed to step forward and receive the sacrament, and they've had to stay there. Is closed communion, are these words of institution really uniting? They seem very dividing. Consider this. We are not alone. In fact, for the majority of church history, every church, every Christian church practiced closed communion that only its own members could receive the sacrament at its altars. Up until, what, 250 years ago? That was the common practice. To this day, the Orthodox and the Catholic Church, along with confessional Lutherans, still have as their official doctrine closed communion, our tables for our members. Now think of this. The only major denominations left in the world that still are staunchly pro-life, that still refuse to ordain women as pastors, that still refuse to recognize the validity of homosexual marriage, are also the denominations that continue to practice, at least officially, closed communion. I think there's something to this practice that has endured for two millennia. Now it is true. Close communion, our practice of it, these words of institution do divide. They are divisive here on earth, and that's the way it has to be. Because even though Paul says in Ephesians, Jesus fills everything in every way, there is only one Jesus here on this altar. And what I mean by that is we aren't allowed to all bring our own version of who we think Jesus is as we step forward to this communion table to receive this sacrament. There's one Jesus here. And one Jesus can't say at the same time, I am truly present, my body and blood are truly present, and no, it's just a symbol. He can't say both of those things at the same time. One Jesus can't say, Pray to my mother Mary and don't pray to my mother Mary. Baptize babies, don't baptize babies. Ordain women, don't ordain women at the same time. One Jesus can't say, when I come again, I'm going to put an end to this world and judge the living and the dead. And on the other hand, at the same time, say, when I return, I'm going to set up a majestic earthly kingdom. Jesus can be everywhere with everyone all at the same time, but he cannot be a logical fallacy. He cannot be a living contradiction. Jesus is not a piece of Play-Doh that we get to shape however we want. That is the reason for division. There is one Jesus here, and we don't dare step up here shoulder to shoulder with someone who confesses some other kind of Jesus. But even more than the division that our practice creates, that the biblical practice of closed communion creates, is a unity. While we do see division on this side of heaven that closed communion creates, we also see Communion also illustrates the, the, the great unity we have with those on the other side. There's a very good reason that we use in our, uh, we say in our communion liturgy, Therefore, with all the saints on earth and hosts of heaven, we praise your holy name and join their glorious song. There's a reason why in the prayer that we use by communion, we say, In this sacrament, time and eternity meet as we celebrate a foretaste of the feast now enjoyed by all who are in heavenly glory. If you've been into any older churches, and especially, I think, in, in Scandinavian churches, Swedish churches, they they have a communion rail. I know communion rails are, are no longer a design feature in most newer churches, but their communion rail is designed as a half circle, and it runs right into the wall uh, behind the altar. And, and that's to illustrate that when you're done kneeling at this communion rail, receiving your Lord's body and blood here, you just go around to the other side in heaven and continue to receive that very same meal. In fact, in some of those churches with the half dome, the half moon communion rail, on the other side of the wall would be the the church cemetery. What What a fantastic reminder for us that even those loved ones we've said goodbye to, they're not gone. They're not dead. They are communing with us at this very same supper of the Lamb. Think of those people when you step forward. Think of the believers you've known that have gone on before you. Think of them on the other side of that wall receiving the very same body and blood in heaven that you receive right here on this earth. And that means that we're not alone here. There may just be a few of us. But this sacrament brings great unity. It transcends time and space. It joins us together with that great multitude in heaven that no one could count from every tribe and nation and language and people. They're all celebrating at at the throne of the Lamb. And so are we. They're all sitting before His altar and feasting. And so are we here tonight. Yes, there may be divisions on this side of heaven because of the Lord's Supper. Because not everyone worships the one Jesus who has revealed himself in Scripture. But in this sacrament, we are united with believers of all time and all places as we celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. There are lots of words that have been recorded in history that need no explanation or further introduction. And... If everyone actually took Jesus at his word, the words of institution wouldn't need any explanation either. But tonight, I pray that you better understand and fully believe that these are not words of prayer, but of proclamation. Not of incantation, it's not a spell, but of revelation. Not of recollecting, but of reliving. Not of division, but of unification, but most of all. I pray that as you hear those words and as you step up to these tables tonight, you believe to your heart that Jesus is truly present for you here. That he truly gives you his very real body and blood, which he poured out for the very real and very personal forgiveness of your sins. Amen.